This is a special episode. Most of the time here on What Was That Like? I talk to a regular person who's been through some type of extremely unusual situation. If you've just discovered this podcast, you can scroll through the episode titles and see that we've heard a lot of really big and unusual stories, and all of them are told firsthand by the person who went through it. But a lot of times, a listener will contact me and say, Scott, I've just binged all of your past episodes, and I need more. What's another podcast where I can hear more stories like this? And my recommendation is this, The Secret Room. The tagline for The Secret Room is, A podcast about stories no one ever tells. If you like really interesting and unusual stories, and I know you do because you're listening to this show, you'll definitely want to check out The Secret Room. The host is my friend Ben, and I think he and I have a lot in common. He has a lot of empathy for his guests, and he has a knack for finding stories that just make you sit back and think. And then you go and binge all of the past episodes. So today, I'm playing for you one of my favorite episodes of The Secret Room. It's called Daughters. I really like this story for a bunch of different reasons. I think you'll enjoy it too. And this one is ad-free for everyone. And of course, at the end, we'll have a new listener story like we do on every episode here. You can find The Secret Room on the podcast app you're using right now, or you can learn more about the show at the website, thesecretroompodcast.com. And now, please enjoy The Secret Room episode, Daughters. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Can you tell me a secret? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you about the time that I exploded toner cartridge in the work printer. Uh-oh. <laughs> I was trying to clear a jam, and I was way ahead of myself. I was like, oh, I can fix this, no problem. And I'm ripping the parts out grab the toner cartridge and I yank it and all this black toner just spilled everywhere. Oh, man. Luckily, there were no cameras in this building <laughs> at the time, so I just, like, slowly shoved it back. Oh. And luckily, I had to, like, be careful getting up because I magically somehow did not get any toner on me. My but God. the toner was all over the fucking place. <laughs> Who found it? I don't know because I fucking bolted. <laughs> it was, like, 4 a.m. in the morning when I used to work, like, really early. Man. I just, like, walked away, and I was like, I'm not coming back. Nope, no, avoiding this printer. I will print on a different floor and go way out of my way and not avoid this. When it came back later, they are like, yeah, don't use the printer on this floor. Somebody tried to fix it, and they broke it. And I was like, I had to keep a straight face. I was like, oh, really? I was like, damn. I'm like, they should have called me to help them fix it. <laughs> It sounds like a lifetime movie. I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> oh, my I, goodness. Kay joins me in the secret room today with a secret she's been holding for five years. 2015-ish is when I started to tell the lie. Okay. How many people know your secret? There's not many people that know my secret. Okay. It's a story of family and blood. Hi, my name is Kay, and my secret is that my answer to a common question people ask when they're getting to know you is a complete lie. <laughs> If people knew I was lying about this fact, they would simply not understand. Some would even hold me in great disdain. I've got to tell someone. How old were you when the secret happened? I was 24, 25 when it began. And as you'll see, Kay's story snuck up on her. She said, how are you? And I'm like, I'm fine. She's like, really? I thought I'd give you a little bit of time since it happened. And I'm like, what happened? And she's like, oh, you don't know? I'm like, 
No. It involves a man whose character literally changed before her eyes. He would just whip out this wad of money. How did he react when you told him how you felt? Started screaming and yelling, and the mediator had to say, you know, I'm going to have to throw you out if you're not going to calm down. And as you take this journey with Kay, you'll experience the very same turns that she did not see coming. This is actually coming up probably a secret within a secret, so a little bonus. Okay. Because probably only two people know this. Did Jeff know all this was going on? Oh, yeah, he was part of it. He would go back into the office of the bar with these people. This is The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. I'm Ben Ham. Ben, it was so funny. It's not funny, but it is looking back. I was hysterically laughing and hysterically crying at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Perfect. Okay, I think we're ready to go. All right, sounds good. Terrific. Just looking for my questions. Hi, Dina. Welcome to The Secret Room. Hi, Ben. How are you? Oh, thank you for having me. Well, you're welcome. I'm doing fine. And it's it's great to have you here with me. It's surreal that I'm actually going to be part of it. So neat. I'm so grateful that you reached out to share this amazing story. I'm honored that you thought it worthy of sharing. For sure. The way that you phrased your secret really touched me, and I'm just so interested to get to what it is you feel that you just can't tell people. And to understand that, I think we need to go back to a former relationship you had. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's where it all started. Can you tell me how you met this man? (laughs) I was actually in the end of a relationship. And to get out of being confronted with this person, I would go out with a friend. She kept bugging me, come to the bar, come to the bar, come to this bar. It was at the bar that I met Jeff, and Jeff was actually the owner of the bar. I went several times and met Jeff, the owner of the bar, and we hit it off. We hit it off quite famously. And at the time, I was planning on moving to Atlanta where my parents were. I wasn't leaving for, I think, several weeks to a couple months. So built a relationship with him while I was finishing my time in northeastern Pennsylvania. And when it came time for me to go, he was begging me not to go. He wanted me to stay with him. And I was like, you know, I'm going. I want to be with my parents. So I left for Pennsylvania. And this was in the early spring of 2000, I believe, when I left. This is actually probably a secret within a secret. So a little bonus. Because probably only two people in my life, maybe three, know this. (laughs) I left for Atlanta and I drove down and took my car. I had a, I don't even remember what kind of car I had, but it was very old and kind of beat up. And there were these fumes that would come into the car when I drove it. On my way, I was like a day out of Atlanta. I took, I think, two days to get there. And the, the night, my first night drive, I was feeling quite strange in a hotel by myself. And lo and behold, I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. And here I am going to Atlanta. So I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know, I have no idea. I think I actually ended up calling him and telling him. And he was wonderful. Like, he's like, I'll, I'll support you. I'll be there for you. You know, maybe you should come back. And I'm like, well, you know, I just have to see. So I continued to go down to Atlanta and talked to my mom about it. And he wanted to be there. I was very, very early. So they actually waited. I believe I had to wait about two months for my first doctor's appointment. And he insisted, I'm going to come down for this. I want to be there for the very first appointment. So he did. He flew down. We were kind of happy. And, you know, he got to meet my parents. And we went to the first appointment to find out there was no heartbeat. And um, the physician, she wanted to do round of blood work. And sure enough, I was pregnant, but the baby didn't survive. So they asked me, do you want to go in and have a procedure in the hospital to take care of this? Or do you want your body to naturally go through it? And I was like, no, please, I'll do the procedure. 
He stayed with me the whole time. He extended his stay for another week so that he could be there when I had the procedure in the hospital and be there for me for the next couple of days. He actually blamed it on my jalopy of a car and breathing in fumes and stuff. So when he flew back, he sent me money so that I could get another car. You must have had a lot of emotions. I mean, certainly you must have felt a terrible sense of loss about the child. Oh, yeah. It was hard. It was very difficult. Can't imagine. And then I would think you also probably have a lot of emotions wrapped up in the relationship with this man that you've moved away from. Yeah. Then for a moment, it looked like, wow, you know, maybe you will have a relationship for life one way or another with this man. Right. And then that's dashed. And and then again, you're sort of not sure where you stand. Oh, my gosh. It was a flood of emotion because, too, you know, I didn't know this man, you know, a long time either. So... But he swooped in like a superhero, and I was taken off my feet. I told my parents, I'm going to go back to Pennsylvania and be with him. I can completely understand that, Kay, because he just came in and and was just the man. He just did it for you and was there. And now you're thinking, well, gee, maybe I shouldn't have let him go. Right, right. This is the one. (laughs) This is the one I need to be with. Look at everything that he did for me in this rough time. And he wanted you to come back to Pennsylvania. Oh, very much so. Yes, very much so. Wow. So you packed up. I did. And uh, how long had you been in Atlanta before you decided to turn around and head back? I went down in the spring and by the end of summer, by maybe August, I was back in Pennsylvania. And what what did your parents think about that? Were they on board? They were very supportive. I have my mom and my stepdad are very supportive of me. So you pack up, you head back to Pennsylvania. I did. Yep. And that began the next... 10 years of craziness. Well, 15, I guess. And so you you moved in with him. Mm-hmm. I did. He got us this nice little apartment. So he owned the bar. He owned this bar in this town. And it was a family-run bar business. So his dad had had it and passed down to him. And when I got back, he had a little apartment ready for us, a really nice little place, so, you know, lock and key on the outside. And, you know, I didn't even have to work. and. We did the bar. Leading up to that, how was your relationship with him in that first year? It was wonderful. We had a little tiny kitchen when and when I lived in this apartment with him. And one day he had gone out and came home and I was just on my hands and knees with a sponge cleaning the kitchen floor because it was not very big. So I was like, I, I don't need a a mop. And he comes rushing over and says, You stand up, no woman of mine is gonna be on her hands and knees cleaning a floor. In that first year then, one of the first questions in front of you guys must have been, are we going to have another child? It was something we actually never talked about. You know, I went back and we got into the bar life. I didn't know the ins and outs of it. And I'm not a materialistic person at all. And, you know, money's not a huge concern to me. But he would put himself out there like he just had a ton of money. Even when that time he came down to Georgia, just whip out this wad of money. And there were bigger bills, you know, that you could see on the end of it. So come to find out, like in our relationship, majority of that was ones. (laughs) He'd wrap it with a couple higher bills to make it look like, ooh, I have this great big wad of money. Wow. Always set money on the nightstand when he would, you know, go off to to do the things for the bar or whatnot and, you know, get yourself something, take care of yourself, go buy something, go shopping. And so he wasn't as wealthy as he let on? Not at all. <laughs> when he found out I was coming back from Georgia, took a $30,000 loan out in his mother's name. I stumbled across it. He used the loan to pay the loan payments. And then eventually that ran out. And I think that's when we had to start paying it. And I was like, you did not tell me that you took a loan to do this. In, in your mother's name, no less. Yes, in his mother's name. <laughs> I can't believe she did it for him. But And what did he say? You know, it was for us and to provide for us and to you know, have everything that we needed right at the touch of our fingertips so that we wouldn't have to want for anything. And it would be an easy situation is basically how he portrayed it. And is this the moment when you started to feel that things you know, weren't as great as he thought? Not particularly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So we lived the bar life. So we'd go to 
the bar, you know, in the evening and be there till, gosh, I, I, we'd be there till sometimes three, four, five, six o'clock in the morning partying. And we'd always do the after parties and everything. So again, this was from somebody who had no idea about this kind of lifestyle. So it was a party for me and I thought it was really neat. And Lots of times, you know, he'd go into the back office with his friends or people from the bar and, you know, just leave me sit out there. And then they'd reemerge, you know, within five or 10 minutes, sometimes less than that. Or two of them would go to the bathroom, the restroom at the same time and, you know, come out. And I had to be like six to eight months in. I realized that they are doing cocaine. Again, something I have never been confronted with in my life. Did Jeff know all this was going on? Oh, yeah, he was part of it. He would go back into the office of the bar with these people and they'd disappear. And I just thought, you know, this is the life, the bar life. And he's, you know, having a conversation with these individuals that need to be had or whatever. No, I realized that they are doing drugs in the back room. Gosh, is Jeff dealing? Not at that time. He wasn't really a dealer he would get an occasional eight ball is what they call them and split it up or whatever and sell it for a little extra cash every now and then. But that was much later on. And when I was kind of in over my head, I don't remember exactly how or when I realized, oh my gosh, this is what they're doing back there. And it's just this occasional thing. And they're just doing this for partying in the bar or whatever. Of course, eventually I get invited along. Do you want to try one? Do you want to do one? And I held out for a while. <laughs> Maybe it was about six months. So eventually I started to partake and share in that partying and that part of the lifestyle. Wow. Was it easy for you to get into once you made the decision? Very much so. Through the years, we never had to go out and look for anything as far as drugs. They always came to us. Majority of the time, we didn't even pay for a lot of it. It was the exchange of alcohol for right. the drugs. And the drug of choice was cocaine. Can you tell me what it was like taking the cocaine? It, like I said, it took me a while before I would try it because I was scared. I remembered asking everybody, what's it going to do to me? How's it going to make me feel? And they're like, just try it. And it makes you feel awake when you first do it. You take that first line and you feel very awake and very alert and colors are a little brighter and your hearing is a little sharper. And so it just kind of heightens your senses. The hard part is coming down from it. You know, you get really shaky and really jonesy for another fix and stuff. So that's the difficult part when you're doing a drug like that. And did you realize that you were having a problem or did that not dawn on you till later? Uh, initially, you just play it off as this is part of the lifestyle and he owns a bar and this is our life now. And, you know, I'm part of the bar lifestyle. And Really, in the beginning, that's where it just kind of stayed, was the party lifestyle in the bar. Whenever we would open 9 o'clock at night till 2 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, occasionally we'd have, you know, stay later and stuff. And it wasn't something where, like, I needed to get uh, through my days, you know, and sit there and do it all day. or Not like that. It was just part of the party lifestyle. How was he treating you those days? Uh after you started taking drugs, is that when his behavior toward you changed? No, he was an alcoholic. So, I mean, drugs are not great. It's abuse, whatever you do with them. But his problem was alcohol. And obviously, we had a continuous stream of it when we had a bar downstairs. Like I said, when I got pregnant with my first child, we moved to the apartment above the bar. So we didn't even have to go anywhere for everything. Everything was right downstairs. Did either of you have any concern that you were bringing a child into this world of drugs and cocaine? No. In the back of my head, it was there. It was just an irresponsible lifestyle in every way, shape, and form. You know, I'm not proud of it, but it happened. It sounds like you, were, like you weren't married? No, never been married. You never decided to tie the knot. What was behind that? If that was one thing that I did that was smart, in all those years was to never marry him because I can't even imagine the heap of problems had I married that man beyond what I already had. You know, he wanted to. And Why did you tell him no? I told him that I would marry him if he got rid of the bar. If he got rid of the bar and we did something else, that would be the day that I would marry him. So on some level, you did know that this was a problem. 
I did. And you know what? I kind of forgot that too. In the beginning, I'm coming back from Georgia. He actually promised me. So from the beginning, the promise was always, I will get rid of the bar. I will sell the bar. And several times he even went as far as to put for sale signs on it um, to get rid of it and then just never did. So it was never really going to happen. No, it wasn't. It really wasn't. And were you drinking and taking drugs when you were pregnant with your first child? No. When I found out I was pregnant, I went to the OBGYN and immediately stopped. And Kay, you had three children, right? I did. With Jeff? Mm-hmm. At any point when you were having children with him, did you ever think or hope that that would help change things and make things better? I did. I guess I would also ask, did any of the children have a positive impact on your relationship? No. And again, there's the empty promises because every time a pregnancy would pop up, even in the first, I'm going to get better. I'm not going to drink anymore. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop doing drugs. I'll sell the bar. You know, we'll get out of this and we'll be a nice family somewhere else. Every single time I got those promises and no, I can't even tell you that anything changed for a period of time. It, it just didn't change. So part of it you was changed. like, yeah, this is our lifestyle. This is how we live. And it, there's another part of you that knows that this is not healthy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There really was. Were your pregnancies planned? No, none of my kids were planned. <laughs> none of them were. So how was it having kids, you know, born into this lifestyle? Uh, I was exhausted because oh, bad. <laughs> <laughs> when I tell I mean three kids alone. I, I look back on it and I don't even know how I physically maintained. I mean, just being a young, healthy woman had to be it because when I tell you like there were sometimes in a week I would get maybe four or five hours of sleep between the bar, between the kids, between him, between you know, everything that I I took care of everything. He, he didn't help. I always called him my fourth kid, and he was the most difficult one to take care of. How did he treat you? Uh, he had an insatiable appetite for sex. <laughs> that got much more depraved as the years went on. What do you mean by depraved? Like... Kay's answer after the break. Stay with me. Kay's pregnant by a man who's using drugs and has made unfulfilled promises to sell his bar. And now she tells us that his demands in the bedroom have become more and more... Demented. Like he did more and more disgusting things. Like it just wasn't base. You know, in the beginning it was basically had fun. But I get, like I said, it just got more depraved over the years. One of the things that he liked in the last couple few years was he wanted me to pretend like I was trying to get away from him when uh, we were like, basically he wanted to pretend like he was raping me. And I mean, jokes on him. That's what I felt like. It was horrible. I mean, I would cry. It was horrible. I would cry, you know, during it, but he was like, good show, <laughs> you know, no, really wasn't a show. And he wanted to use different objects and Stuff that I couldn't even imagine that I would have never imagined that I would have done. I did satisfy him. And in that time period, when I used cocaine, most of the time it was to get through those times because those were the hardest. He was a very happy, kind of annoying drunk or when he was high or, but hit the hangover. And the next day he was miserable and angry and hateful. Well, Kay, at some point, you must have reached a breaking point. You, you probably figured there was something you just had to do to resolve the situation, right? There was. What did you do? I, this was a time where he was like going on binges for days of drinking. He would be up for like two or three days of drinking and partying and straight drinking. And then he'd pass out for a day and get up and start right in like, I'd have to bring him a shot so he could get out of bed and, and just segue into the next binge. My mother, we kind of hatched a plan, very poorly laid, 
hindsight's twenty twenty, and I probably could have done it a million different ways. But uh, she eventually came up one time. We were going to wait for his next bender. She picked a week where she flew up and stayed with neighbor. And in a week, he's definitely going to go on a binge. I want to say the day she flew up, he started a bender. So she didn't even have to wait long. I think we waited two days. He partied and stayed up and drank for two days and passed out. And my mom came over and we scooped up just the necessity. And I think I got like three garbage bags full of stuff. And I went back to Georgia with her, back to Atlanta. You took your kids? I did. I did. With the girls. Are there any laws against that? Well, we weren't married. So... There really wasn't. And that this is the stuff that I didn't know. The week I went down, had an appointment at some point in like the first week that I was there with a lawyer, but I didn't get to the lawyer in time. Jay got, or Jeff got to the lawyer in Pennsylvania before me, and I got served with a summons that I had to bring the children back, and he was taking me for full custody of the children. Had I gotten to it first, had we had that appointment with a lawyer and had I done it first, he would have had to come down to Georgia to go through all the court proceedings. No kidding. But he did it first. Oh my gosh. Again, we weren't married. So there was no custody agreement that had ever gone through a court system before. It was all about who did it first and he ended up doing it first. So I ended up having to go back with the kids because he did it first. I had nowhere to stay, and I there was a neighbor lady that I was friends with that was right next to the bar, and she ended up letting me stay there. Did you see him during the day or at night? They gave a temporary order. There was a 50-41 split with the temporary order, so he would take them you know, three days out of the week, I think. His mother lived a few blocks away, and so majority of the time, the girls would be with the grandmother. But we had to go through a custody dispute. I got um, public assistance, and that's when I went back to school so that I could get an education. Just prior to graduation, they changed the laws to maintain the benefits I was getting, which was very minimal. My parents were sending me money every month so that I could pay the rent at where I was staying. But to maintain what I was getting, since I was a full-time student, I would have had to have done community service on top of being a full-time student of 20 hours a week. I would have had to come home, find more daycare, actually, and go to a community service, you know, each night for a couple hours, five days a week. And not been able to be with my like be home just in time to put my kids to bed to get up the next day and do it over and so it was impossible and and then so they were cutting my financial assistance and so I had to go back to their dad because I had I had nowhere else to go you mean you went and moved back in with him I did. I did. And he treated it like it was a party. He had a party at the bar and with anybody that would come, look who's back. Look who came back to me. Oh, how exciting. You know, here's a party. Have a free shot. How'd you feel? I was miserable. Yeah. I was miserable. And what did your parents say? My heart breaks for them and I can never, never pay my parents back for everything that they went through and did for me. Because during that first custody battle, they must have dropped probably $20,000. And all I ended up getting was the 51-49 split and I had to move back in with him anyway. So I believe it rendered it nil and void because we were living together. Gosh. So Jeff was putting on a show that he was happy that you were back. Did you feel that he was in his heart happy? I truly believe he was. I feel like I was more of a property to him. So it was like I got my property back. I won. I won. You know, even with the, the custody dispute, it was about winning. Did it just pick up right where you left off with the abuse? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, ben, when I tell you it got worse, <laughs> and he had always said to me, I know that you're going back to school so that you could leave me. You're only doing it so that you can better yourself, so that you can you can leave me and take the kids with you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's why I was doing it. So when I was forced to move back in with him, I had graduated. I was working at a hospital. He took all my paychecks. 
and the pay stub had to be attached to them so that he could make sure that I wasn't stashing money away. My parents had gotten me a cell phone, but I wasn't allowed to keep the cell phone on me. Like he would sit at night, like going through my phone, like seeing who I talked to. And at one point said, I'll just get us phones. He got us each a cell phone because I think he ruined it to the point I couldn't use it anymore. And How did he ruin it? Because he'd sit at night and go through it and go into the settings and change settings. And I want to even say maybe he broke it one night when he was drunk, you know, in his stupors and stuff like that. So he got both of us cell phones and that lasted all of but two weeks. And he said, I talked to my mom and my sister too much. So I wasn't, he wasn't going to let me have one. And when it got closer to the hearing to finalize the custody papers, he stopped letting the kids stay in the apartment with me above the bar. They stayed at his mother's house several blocks away, and he would bring them to see me maybe one at a time or two at a time, never all three of them, because then he knew I wouldn't leave with just one or two. I'd have to have all three. We did have a van, but he kept the keys for it, so I couldn't go. And then I, I want to say maybe a month before the hearing, there was a door from the apartment with a stairwell down to the kitchen, the bar. That's how we would get from the apartment to the bar from the inside. And there was a door to our back porch that we had out the kitchen of the apartment to get outside. And that was those huge cinder block building. He took all the keys and let me, I was locked up there every day. Really? So I couldn't leave. Wow. And he would go down and, uh, um, 10 bar, or he would let me down there to 10 bar at nighttime. And then, you know, when we were done, it was back upstairs and he would, the, the knobs on the doors were keys on both sides. So he would have the key to the doors and lock, like he'd go down the bar and lock the door and I couldn't get out. So you're, you're an actual prisoner. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds crazy. I'm sorry. It, when you say it out loud, I haven't really told the full story like this in quite a while. And it sounds crazy. It sounds like a lifetime movie. I mean, it's just amazing. I, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yes. So, but it was. I mean, that's what he did to me. Could you get out a window or, or anything? Uh, it was a cinder block building from top to oh bottom. Oh, my God. No, there was just no other way. You know, the doors. I, I mean, I, I'm sure if I had tried, but where was I going to go? You know, just besides being delusional, what was his justification for locking you up? You think you were going to run away or? I think so. Yeah. With the kids, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. That's, again, why he wouldn't let me have all three of them in the house, because that was a way of him keeping me there, because he knew I would never leave without all three of my children. Well, you'd done it before. I know. And that's probably why, too, because I had done it before. So he's going to make it impossible for me to leave. So we had a landline phone. Majority of the time he would unplug it so I couldn't call. But if he was in a stupor and passed out, I could plug it in and call my family. So I know around that time um, I called my sister and she was going to come for the hearing. She's like, I'm not going to let you go to that hearing alone. I'm going to be there for you. And so I knew my sister was coming. When it got to the week before the hearing, he turned the electricity off. To what end? Why? I don't know. I mean, this is how convoluted he got because that was maybe like four or five days I went without electricity. And the last two days, he turned the water off to the upstairs. Oh, my God. I don't know. And he wouldn't even stay there. He stay, He, he would leave the bar, make sure I was up there. and You're just locked up there. Go to his mom's. <laughs> he sleep at his mom's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and thinking back, I think to myself, my God, I'm such logical, but why? You know, why? I don't know, but I'm so defeated at that point. I just said, okay, this is it. This is life. What am I going to do? And it'll get better. And I know he would tell me that, you know, he's doing this for our own good. So, you know, that I don't do anything rash. And as soon as this hearing is over and this decision is made, like we get to go back to the hearing and tell him that you're living with me. So, you know, it'll be fine. We'll, we'll be back to normal. 
And so he was wanting the hearing to be over and done with, you know, so that he could say, I have a legal custody agreement. And so during this period of what is essentially, you know, incarceration and all the utilities were turned off, how did you eat? Yeah, he turned the water off there. Was it cold? Was it hot? What time of year was it? I want to say we had a gas for the water heater and boiler. You know, it was springtime, so it wasn't too unbearable. I just, uh, he brought food his mother would make, you know, pasta or whatever. I don't even know that I was eating off of my, again, this is another instance where like these two months, I'm, I'm going to say the majority of this was, was just a blur. I mean, I remember sleeping a lot. I think I just slept on the couch and kind of lived on the couch. I was just so depressed and defeated. Again, he didn't let me starve and I had food and the necessities or whatnot. He just wanted to get to this hearing and then it would all go back to normal. The day of the hearing came. So I'm all locked up. My sister was coming the day before the hearing and she wasn't due to arrive till about eight o'clock in the evening. And at 730, magically, all the doors were open and the keys were hung back on the the nails and the doors were all open. He kept the bar closed that night. So, you know, nobody was there in the bar. That was like maybe 15 minutes to a half hour before my sister arrived. And he wasn't there and the children weren't there. He kept them at his mom's and my sister came. And when I let her in, she just started crying. She said, I looked terrible. She said, I didn't even look like me. It just didn't even look like me. I looked like um, a shell of a person. Did she know that you had been imprisoned and what your conditions were? I think I probably didn't tell my family a lot of the things that were going on because they're so far away and what are they going to do and why am I going to bother them? And I'll just deal with it on my own. You know, there's no sense in making them worry or making them hurt more than they have to, you know? So I think my sister had an idea that things were rough prior to showing up that evening, but not the extent of it. And like I said, I didn't even have to say the extent of it. When she opened that door, she just broke down and cried and held me. We both did. She's like, let's go. You you can't stay here. And we went to a hotel. And I remember she had bought um, Chinese food and I was sitting on the bed and I just couldn't even eat. I, I couldn't even eat. And I said, I'm going home with you tomorrow. I can't do this anymore. I just can't do it. She was living in Ohio. And she was like, what? What? How? I was like, I don't know, but that's, I just have to. So we stayed in this hotel and got up in the morning. I think the hearing was like nine o'clock in the morning and went to the courthouse and I couldn't afford a lawyer at this point. Um, So I just went myself and beforehand his lawyer was there and I said am I able to speak with her and I went into a room just private with his lawyer I don't even know why that was probably not even the right thing to do and I said I think I'm going to go back to Ohio with my sister I'm not abandoning my children but I can't live like this and so she's like okay well (laughs) we'll deal with that but you just tell the mediator when we go in there you know what you are going to do and we went into the room with the mediator And he was sitting in a chair on the left and his lawyer was next to him and I was next to her. And I said, I'm going to go back to Ohio with my sister. And he stood up and knocked his chair over. He's like, what are you talking about? What are you doing? You're going to leave your children and started screaming and yelling. And the mediator had to say, you know, I'm going to have to throw you out if you're not going to calm down. And because I totally took him by surprise, he thought we were just going to go in there, get the, you know, court ordered 50-50 split or whatever it would be. Actually, because we were living together, I don't think they would have done a custody agreement because we were living together, but I didn't even give the opportunity for that to be worked out. I said, well, whatever we need to do, I'm not abandoning my children, but I can't live this way anymore. And so they gave a custody agreement of like three weeks of visitation for the summer coming up. And then it would go beyond that. I can't remember what it was. Uh, I think we would have had to come back in the fall or something to get it worked out. That's when I came to Ohio. So how many, how many times did you, did you go back to Pennsylvania to fight for your kids? Oh my gosh. 
I don't remember, but I was there for everyone. Oh, when I tell you, it was a just a heartbreaking process to go through. I, my experience with it, it did, there was no help. I had no help. I couldn't afford a lawyer, so I always went on my own. I was treated like a deadbeat parent. And how was it that he was able to keep the kids? He had a lawyer. Again, I think he took out another loan somewhere through the grapevine. He took out another loan in his mother's name. And so it made it much easier. So I feel like because I showed up just by myself without any legal representation there, you're just labeled as a deadbeat parent. You know, he didn't have legal representation. And majority of the time, I wasn't even able to talk. So you're living with your sister, trying to get custody of your kids who you are 450 miles apart from. What is Jeff doing? He ended up dying of a drug and alcohol overdose in October of 2013. Oh my gosh. And what this means for Kay and her kids as the secret room continues. Straight ahead, a stranger reaches out to Kay with an unexpected offer. But first, Jeff is dead thanks to the lifestyle that he led, the same lifestyle that Kay left behind. I'm still alive. I'm still here. And I'm living my best life at the moment, you know, set aside from not having my children. But if I had stayed, I very well could have ended up in the same spot he's at. And so who has custody of your kids? There was nothing that went through the court system. I feel like it was an accident that I found out. How old were your kids at the time he died? 12, 10, and 8. So young. Yeah, very young. So did they go to his mother? They did. Nobody called me. Nobody told me. And about three weeks to a month after, I get a phone call from somebody who's absolutely nobody, who has nothing to do with anything, And I truly believe it was just somebody calling to nib about the situation and get the quote-unquote gossip about it. Called me and I answered. I'm like, hey, how are you? I hadn't heard from this person in a while. She said, how are you? And I'm like, I'm fine. She's like, really? I thought I'd give you a little bit of time since it happened. And I'm like, what happened? And she's like, oh, you don't know? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? I don't know. She's like, oh, I don't know if I should be the one to tell you. I'm like, oh my gosh, you have to tell me what is going on. She's like, well, Jeff died. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, it happened like almost a month ago. And I was like, what? (laughs) My God. I had to sit. I was standing. What went through your mind? Ben, it was so funny. It's not funny, but it is looking back. I was hysterically laughing and hysterically crying at the same time. Yeah. I couldn't stop myself. (laughs) I can't imagine the release. I mean, you must have felt horrible on one hand and at the other hand, just so relieved. That's why I was like, oh my gosh, I don't, you know, now what do I do? What do I do? Because now I can have my girls. So like I hung up with this person. I'm like, oh my gosh, now I can have my girls. This is amazing. So that day I left, I was dating a person and then we drove back to Pennsylvania and I'm thinking I'm going to get my kids. I show up and I had to fill out all this paperwork and then they gave me an emergency date and we went in. They said, We think the girls are doing just fine where they are, so we're going to leave them there for now. Who said that? The the mediator. I was like, but I'm their mother. You know, why? Well, they're fine. And there was a question of going between state and stuff, so we're just going to leave them right where they are. I had to wait. Like, we had to stay around. That was like a Friday, I think Thursday or Friday. And they made an emergency temporary court hearing for Monday. And again, they granted the temporary custody to the grandparent, and that was that. And I was like, are you kidding me? Were you able to see your kids? Then I had to come back for another mediated hearing. They deemed it that I had to do a reunification process. So had I been living there, this would be something where you go like three times a week. But I'm like, I live 450 miles away. So we had to do it for one day a month where I was working two jobs and I worked another job at the town I lived in and so I was working like six days a week so I would 
And then over time, like this counselor would do these reunification meetings and submit after so many meetings, submit it to the court to say, yes, I think this parent and child can be reunited and back together. And this parent is should have custody of the child. I showed up every month and I would work my 12-hour shifts, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and leave Sunday right when I got out of work because we'd make the appointments for Monday at 9 a.m. And so once a month, I'd go to this appointment, leave right after work, drive back. It was about almost a nine-hour drive, sleep in my car for like an hour, get up and go have this one-hour meeting with the girls in front of this counselor and drive back home so that I could be back for work on Tuesday. Gosh, what a schedule. Oh, it was it was exhausting. Was it good? I mean, I know it was good to see your girls, but they were happy to see you and spend time with you? No. They were not? Uh-uh. The very first meeting that I had with them, all three of them walked into the room, heads down, and like made no eye contact with me. So you know they were coached. They were told how a horrible person I was. I left them. I didn't want them. When he died, I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be like the veil will be lifted from his family's eyes and we can move forward finally. They basically picked up where he left off. They didn't try to promote any kind of relationship, actually quite the opposite. So I think I did do it for about a year once a month, but there was nothing. There was like zero sign of progress, of a glimmer in their eye. So it was in 2015 when I just was like, I can't do this anymore. Every time I jump in that car and drive back to Pennsylvania, like I'm living my life to do this with nothing coming out of it. So it's just, it came a time where I decided that's it. I have to live the life that's in front of me. And that did not include the children. So okay at this point, You've decided to let your kids go. Yeah, I did. I did. Did it happen in just a moment when you realized that that was what you had to do? I think so. I want to say probably the last time I went to one of these meetings and I just go in and it's the same thing and the same angry jaw clenched faces looking at me and the same dark eyes and you know, just the glares and the daggers. I'm like, nothing has changed. And that's, I think, when I realized after that last meeting where I just can't do this anymore. I can't live live for this anymore. If there was some kind of glimmer of hope and some kind of positive in it at all, I wouldn't be able to turn my back on it. But there just wasn't. Did you say goodbye to your kids? No. Mm-mm. No. How did it feel for you once you'd made that decision? You know, it did feel a little free, like I, like a freeing type of feeling. Oh, you know, I just, I don't have to live like this anymore. I can't imagine how it feels, of course. But Kay, that leads me to a question. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that people ask often when you are getting to know somebody is, do you have any kids? Right. No. What do you say? That's just easier. I, I'm. And that, and that is your secret. That is my secret. Mm-hmm. And so, how does it feel every time that you say you don't have kids? And of course, you do. There's a twang there on the inside, you know. But just like I don't want to go into it because if you say yes, people are going to start asking about them. Well, I have to say. I don't have a relationship with them. They don't live with me. They're in Northeastern Pennsylvania, and here I am in Ohio. Well, why is that? And I just have to tell everything that I told you so that people can understand. I don't want to just leave it at that. Do you feel that people would judge you if they knew that you had kids but had had to essentially abandon them? Um, I don't think so. Like, If people hear the story behind it, how can somebody be negative and judge me harshly. You know, I do go to bed at night. I know I did the best I could and everything in my power to try to get my children. And then got to the point where it's not even like I'm trying to get custody. It's just wanting a relationship with them. And 
You've tried to reach out. I do every holiday, every birthday. Like for a long time, I would call. They'd just hang up on me. They'd pick up the phone and hang up. They wouldn't even answer. They'd turn off the answering machine, so I couldn't even leave a message. If I did get the rare instance where I'd get to talk to them on the phone, somebody would inevitably pick up the other line and start a screaming and yelling match. And so you just couldn't get through. So phone calls just weren't a good thing. And so over the years, I always send flowers on birthdays, holidays, special occasions. Always make sure my contact information is on the card because again, I don't even know if they're getting the things that I send. So painful. How often do you think of them? Oh, every day. I mean, it's just not a day that yeah, goes by. Of course. I don't think of them. Mm-hmm. You told me in our discussions leading up to our interview today, if people dig through your Facebook page, that they might find some pictures of you and your kids. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Early on. You leave those up there. Is that so that somebody might find them one day? Or why do you leave those up there if you deny you have kids? Because they're there. I mean, that's early on. Those are like, I think I actually looked. So the last pictures I have were from 2011. Are you married now? I am. And you know what, Ben? There's another little bonus secret. Yeah. Only one other person knows that. <laughs> Only one other person knows what? That I'm married. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yes. You, you, people know you're in a relationship. They do. They do. But they don't know you're, but you're secretly married. We are. <laughs> why, why is that? We have a wedding scheduled for October 3rd this year. And. If you want to come, I'd be more than awesome <laughs> to have you great. there. And here at the, we're doing it at the Renaissance Festival here in Ohio. But um, but wait, so you you you're having a wedding, uh-huh. but you're married, right? Already. We did. We snuck. You're going to have a celebration. We are. We're going to celebrate. But I haven't told anybody. Um, we did get uh, go to the Justice of the Peace in December and got married because he can put me on his health insurance and that's one less payment. It's cheaper for me to be on his than have my own insurance. Um, so why didn't you want to tell anybody that you guys got married? Because I want to save it for the day that we get. I want people to think that they're sharing in our marriage. It's the first time I'll ever be married. So Right. And the last. <laughs> it means something. Yes. Very much so. Right. <laughs> Taking me well, forty three years to find the right one. <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank you. That's great. And as long as we're kind of on the upswing here and pulling ourselves out of this really very tragic story. Right. Since the time that you sent in your secret and the time that we're talking now, which has been a you know, a few months. Correct. You sent me an email and said that you've got a really happy update. I do. Imagine my surprise. Probably about like a month ago. Oh my gosh, what could have happened? I'll give you a clue. A stranger reached out to Kay with an offer. Find out what it is. Stay with me. Kay's secretly married to the man of her dreams, and she's going to make it public soon. But something most unexpected happens first. I was at work. I get this text message that said, hello, are you this girl's mother? Okay. And wow. I was like, wow. Okay. Where did this come? And I'm thinking, you, at first you, th- you think in my head, I'm like, is this some kind of joke? Like, I don't even know how to process this right now. And here I'm at work and I texted the person back and said, who is this? And they said, I am a good friend of your daughter's. She's been wanting to reach out to you for a long time, but she feels like the people in her circle will not appreciate it, not like it, but like I'm facilitating it. Oh my gosh. And I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) You must have just exploded with joy. Oh, I couldn't even imagine this was right before Christmas. And I'm like, oh. This is like the best Christmas present ever. So you got this call about a month ago. Yes. And so what's happened in the meantime? No. What's going to happen? Tell me. (laughs) She feels like she has to keep it from her siblings and the family that she's with because they would be very angry at her for reaching out. She might suffer some repercussions from that. So she's using her friend's phone when she sees this friend whom she doesn't see often. Okay. 
How old is she? 14, my youngest. Just a young girl. And so how often are you communicating with her? We have only talked through text messaging once is when her and this friend were together. She didn't have a lot of time. She was in close proximity to the family and the siblings. So it was just a quick. And since that conversation, the friend and her had a falling out. So the friend got a hold of me and said, I think, you know, I think I screwed up and we kind of argued and I don't know what's happening. Two weeks ago, the friend said that I think I'm going to be with her next Sunday, like in two weeks, which would have been this past Sunday. So I was waiting and I didn't hear anything. I'm sorry. I'm just waiting. It happened. She'll find another way to get you. That's what I said. I mean, at least I know she has my contact information. She definitely reached out. Probably the third text she said to me was, Mom, Mm. uh, let me take a sip of water. (laughs) Yeah, of course. This one's a little. She said, Mom, I forgive you. I forgive you for everything. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I'm so excited for you to actually talk to her. Yeah. So that was like the third text she sent me. <laughs> and uh, so that was really exciting. And then she did ask me, can you tell me what happened? And I said, oh, I don't really want to get into that over text messaging. We've got a long way to go from where we are right now. I said, I don't understand. We're two very different people than the last time we, you know, saw each other. So, you know, we can take this really slow. I think it's um, positive if we take it slow. And um, she seemed to be okay with that. It's there. And the line of communication was opened. And I can't be any more blessed than that at this moment in time. You know, that's nothing that I ever expected. (laughs) So excited for you. Thank you. Why did you want to tell your secret today? Again, this might be silly because I was, I know you always ask that and I'm like, I I have to think of, (laughs) you know, why not just that I want to be on the secret room podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Initially, when I was thinking before my daughter reached out is that maybe the right person will hear this and it'll cause a domino effect of me being reunited with them. That was actually my initial thinking. Put it out there, out there in the world. I hope you'll keep us up to date. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow. What a story. <laughs> kind of just unloaded, huh? <laughs> I just feel so overcome with emotion for you and everything you've been through. Oh, thank you. Okay, thank you so much for sharing your story. I appreciate it. I appreciate it for allowing it to be on your program. Of course. (laughs) We leave Kay with her secret and she's full of hope for the future. You can tell it just means everything to Kay, can't you? And wouldn't it be great to kick off married life to be reconciled with her daughters? Kay showed me some pictures of precious memories where she's enjoying the outdoors with her daughters. Two of them are from behind, so you don't even have to worry about blurring anything out. And I wonder, do you also have maybe like a picture of the bar or the apartment? I can look. I might be able to wrangle up something when I get off with you. Oh, and she found pictures in full glory of the bar's exterior and interior. And of course, you'll see the second floor where Kay was falsely imprisoned. The pictures are posted now on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our handle across all social media is at Secret Room Pod. And with breaking news, I'm Susie Lark. On the next Secret Room Unlocked, I'll have an update from Dina on what's happened with her daughters in the eight months that have passed since she sat down for today's interview with Ben. Dina recorded her update just three days ago. Hear it on the bonus edition of the podcast, which we call The Secret Room Unlocked. In it, we look deeper into each interview, revealing story details and production notes you're not going to hear anywhere else. It's available when you support at patreon.com slash secret room. I got to get the behind the scenes. Oh yeah, unlocked. Yes, yes. Patreon.com slash secret room. Do you have an auxorial secret to share? Send it to me at our website, secretroompod.com. Click the Share a Secret button when you get there. Thanks to Susie Lark, Lefty Marcucci, Alessandro Nigro, the Street Secret Team, Chet the Sound Engineer, and Breakmaster Cylinder for our theme and music.
This indie podcast that could delivers fresh secrets directly to your phone every other Tuesday night. So see you in two extremely short weeks when someone new steps forward to share yet another amazing story. This is The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories that no one ever tells. Pod on, Kay. Pod on, Ben. I'm Ben Ham. You can see pictures related to this story, including the interior and exterior of the bar and Kay and her daughters when they were younger in the episode notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 154. And go check out The Secret Room. See if you enjoy it as much as I do. Hey, Scott. I was just listening to the Dad Suddenly Stopped Skiing episode. She was talking about being airlifted out of Vale Valley Medical Center to St. Anthony's Hospital. I was just happened to be listening while working in St. Anthony's Hospital today. I actually helped renovate almost all of the operating rooms on that campus. So I just wanted to let you know that kind of a cool thing. Thank you. And I wanted to let you know if you have any comments about any episode or anything else, really, you can call the podcast voicemail line anytime, 24-7. That line is never answered by a human being. It's always voicemail, and you can leave a message up to three minutes long. So you can leave a comment, a question, or you can call in your own listener story. The number is 727-386-9468. And I wanted to let you know about a review that someone left recently, but I'm doing it in a different way. Rather than me reading the review, it's going to be an AI voice. I might keep doing it this way, depending on what you think. Anyway, here's the review from Aaron. This is a five-star review from Aaron Murdoch. Even though true crime is usually my favorite genre, if I were told I can only listen to one podcast for the rest of my life, I would choose this one. It's diverse with people, jobs, experiences, life stories, etc. You know, the kind words are nice, but I don't know. I think that voice sounds just a little bit overdramatic. I mean, almost to the point of being funny. It's like I want to say, come on, man. You're not doing a voiceover for a World War II documentary. It's just a podcast review. Maybe that's just me. What do you think? Might be a fun little segment we can do sometimes. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lai. And now, this week's listener story. I can tell you that the listener stories are never AI voices. They are always read by the listener. And that could be you. If you have a good story, like 5 to 10 minutes long, record it on your phone and email it to me, scott at whatwasthatlike.com. This week's story is from Jen, the host of the Multispective podcast, about a time when music unexpectedly changed things. Stay safe, and I'll see you soon. I thought I'd share a simple yet heartfelt moment that happened to me about a year ago that stuck with me till today. It's a story where the universe and nature came together to create this perfect picture that changed what should have been a regular moment to such a beautiful one. I was traveling in Yunnan, China, on a tour group with a good friend and travel buddy. It was a hot summer's day, and we were walking up a hill, sweating and really quite uncomfortable. It had been a long, long day, and I tuned out to spend that walk in silence. I had my music plugged in, trying hard to ignore the discomfort I was feeling in that moment. I remember thinking on repeat, you're supposed to enjoy this, Jen. Why is it so difficult? Get out of your head and feel the moment. My friend was right next to me, shuffling around with his heavy backpack. Something must have pressed up against the speakers in his bag because it suddenly turned on and immediately disconnected my earphones and played my music on blast on these speakers. And right there, the whole mood and vibe of this hike changed. Picture this, we're hiking up a cobblestone road, pretty high up with views of a little colorful town far out and mountains, clear blue skies and a local old man riding up on a horse. Its tail was moving to the beat of this happy tune. 
the man aged from poverty, exhaustion, and sheer hard farm work in his big straw hat, looks at us with his big smile of joy on his face, bobbing and jiggling to the music, and everyone else around just stopped what they were doing to be in sync with the moment. It was like a scene from a movie, and that very moment, a few minutes at most, that changed the trajectory of the entire day and trip. I've tried really hard to recreate moments like this and learned one thing. When you try hard to look and create moments, you skip the ones right in front of you. We get stuck in the race of trying to be richer, smarter, funnier, happier, more successful, more powerful, more popular, that we lose sight of the beauty that is all around us every day in attempts to find the very thing, happiness. Sometimes all it takes is just being, being in the moment and noticing what you have now, and you will simply see that you already have it all. If you just shift your mindset and attitude to see the beauty in everything around you, you will bring about even more of it. These are some of the messages that are reinforced to me in my podcast, Multispective. There, I interview people from everywhere to share some of the most challenging and darkest moments, how they overcame them and what they learned from their personal experiences. So many of my guests have shared this message to me. Live in the moment, ignore the other noises, and choose every day to see the wonders. The universe will give it right back to you if you just accept it. And for those of you, if you're interested in listening to my podcast, it's called Multispective, and you can find us on any podcast platform or our website, which is www.multispective.org. Uh...